0: All right, our teaching today comes from Jonah chapter 3, where we read the following. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message that I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation that he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. This is God's word. We've said in recent weeks, Jonah's a really popular prophet in Israel. A little bit in contrast to some of his contemporaries at the time who had worse messages for Israel. But Jonah generally had positive messages, made him very popular. But in around 755 BC, God comes to him and says, nope, I got a different message for you. I want you to go to the city of Nineveh which is the capital of this massive, powerful, and violent nation named Assyria. And I want you to proclaim to them a message of repentance so that they would turn from their evil ways. And Jonah doesn't want to go. He doesn't want to go for a couple of different reasons, but at the heart of it, you know, Jonah has this, like we said, toxic nationalism. He has this self-righteous elitism attached to his Jewish religion. And, you know, if God accepts the Assyrians after they repent, then Jonah loses his whole identity as being a successful prophet of God's special people. So he doesn't want to go and he doesn't go. He runs the opposite direction. He's supposed to go north and east to Assyria. He goes south and west and he hops on board a Phoenician cargo ship in the Mediterranean that's headed for the ends of the earth all the way out to Spain. Well, as he hops on that ship, he encounters this, we'll call it a self-inflicted storm because he's the one that brings it about. And he comes to the realization that not only is he suffering because of this storm, which was resulting from his defiance to God, but everybody else in the boat in his life is also suffering from the self-inflicted storm he's created. At some point in time, he sees all the hurt and realizes, all right, this is on me. And the only way to atone for my defiance to God is that you guys, you other sailors, would throw me overboard into the raging waters of God's wrath at sea, Sure enough, they eventually agree to do that, and the storm immediately calms down. And the sailors are spared, but much to Jonah's surprise, Jonah gets spared too. Because God appoints this fish to swallow him, and he's going to stay in the belly of this fish for three days. And Jonah spends his time there crying out to God, amazed by God's grace. Well... After three days, he gets spit out on dry ground and God is recommissioning him. And this time, the message again looks like this. Go to that great city and proclaim to it the message that I give to you. You'll notice in God's recommissioning, what's curiously absent is any criticism. You know, like Jonah has, has messed up big time. And yet God doesn't, he knows his humility. He knows he's cried out for help. He doesn't twist the knife at all. Jonah is going to spend the next month, 600-plus miles, traveling up to Nineveh, again, north and east of where he's located. And I can only imagine what he's thinking, what's going through his mind during the course of that time, because, again, the Assyrians are arguably the most notoriously violent people on the planet. They were very, very commonly, we have lots of records of this, them skinning human beings alive, burning human beings alive, decapitating humans in front of their family members. They did this not only in front of children, but to children. And uh, Jonah's got to be thinking, all right, are these people, are, are they actually going to listen? And even if they do listen, are they worth redeeming? Like, is there anything redeemable about these human beings? Well, Jonah nonetheless, again, listens to the message. He goes to Nineveh. Nineveh, most scholars will say, is probably over 500,000 people at this point. It's a massive, ancient, beautiful, fortified, cultured city. It was the location of this famous library in history called the Library of Ashurbanipal, which if you ever travel to London and go to a museum there, they have over 30,000 clay tablets from the Library of Ashurbanipal, from which we get some of the most infamous works of antiquity, like the Epic of Gilgamesh and the Enuma Elish and a couple other really, like, here's my point. These people are incredibly violent. They're not barbarians. They're not like meathead barbarians. They're smart. That makes them sinister. Sinister. Do you know how hard it is to convert violent, intelligent, arrogant people? Jonah must think there's no way they're going to listen to me. They might do something to me, but again, even if they do listen to me, are they worth? Are they worth redeeming? The message that he speaks to them, that God once again gives to them, is probably spoken in uh, Aramaic, which is the language of commerce and diplomacy in the ancient world, in the ancient Near East. But it's recorded for us in in our Bibles in Hebrew. It's only five words in Hebrew. It's a, a couple more in English, but it essentially amounts to this. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, that's a pretty short sermon. Um, it's not much, particularly my thing, but uh, some people like, you know, maybe like short summaries, but this one's pretty hard to hear. Forty days in Nineveh will be overthrown. That, maybe that's the whole thing. Maybe it's not the whole thing. Some Bible scholars will say maybe that's just a summary of it. And yet, even if that is the whole message, what's amazing is there's law and gospel, what we would call law and gospel, even in just that, because you're going to get destroyed for your wickedness. That's law. You're going to get 40 days of undeserved goodness as an opportunity to change, perhaps. That's gospel, right? So Jonah delivers this message. And, you know, in addition to all this, he's looking for them to repent in the course of these 40 days. But some of you might recognize that number 40 is being significant in the Bible, too, right? It, it Generally speaking, in the Bible, that number 40 comes up all the time from the floodwaters being 40 days to uh, Goliath's taunting of the Israelites on the battlefield being 40 days to the Israelite spies going into Canaan for 40 days to the Israelites wandering in the wilderness for 40 years to Jesus going out into the wilderness and uh, waiting 40 days before he's tempted. There's something significant. Um, And actually what Bible scholars will say is not just amongst the Hebrews, but amongst all ancient peoples, 40 was kind of like the way we use the word dozens today. It's like an indefinite period But it's an indefinite period. Forty is an indefinite period for an opportunity for change. It's an opportunity for repentance, an opportunity for change. And Jonah gives them this message. And of course, you know, since we trust the authority and the inspiration and the power of God's word, we know that if this was all the message that there was, that is sufficient for God to divinely drive human hearts to repentance. That would be enough if that's all there was. In part, because there was probably other factors leading to Nineveh's repentance. So the sociology of what a lot of Bible commentators will tell you is maybe God had sort of preconditioned them to be repentant at this particular point in time. Think about it like this. A lot of commentators will say that if Jonah was spit out of a fish onto dry ground, there's a good chance that you had witnesses to this. And that very clearly doesn't happen every day. So people in the ancient world are thinking, all right, God has like birthed from the sea a prophet into our world. Let's see what he has to say. So they follow him all the way to Nineveh. And this legend and this lore is growing of like some prophet who emerged from the sea, who has some message from God. We should probably listen. That might have conditioned the Ninevites. Additionally, what Jesus says in the New Testament, he says that Jonah was a sign to the Ninevites. Signs, that word, almost always contains a visible component. There's something visibly about Jonah that struck the Assyrians. So if you have a human being who's living in the belly of a fish for three days, uh, stewing in gastric juices, there's a good chance by the time he emerges, his skin is going to be bleached and shriveled back from those juices. It's entirely possible then that the Ninevites see this zombie-looking human being approach them who has a legend attached to him that he emerged from sea, and they're like, all right, we should probably listen to whatever he has to say, right? In addition to that, There are these ancient Assyrian, what they're called as omen texts. Omen texts are like these foreboding, impending doom things. And the Assyrians had their own omen texts that said things like, okay, if there is an unlikely invasion from an enemy, if there are natural signs like earthquakes and floods and famines and, and that sort of thing, if there is potentially a solar eclipse, this is indication that maybe the gods want us to repent. Guess what we have happening on record in the 760s B.C.? during the reign of the III. We have unexpected military successes from invading foreigners. We have uh, geological signs like massive earthquakes. Uh, in fact, on June 15th, 763 BC, there was a total solar eclipse in Assyria. Here's my point. Does God work through supernatural means? Yes, absolutely he does. But God also created nature. And therefore, in his divine foreknowledge, God can also work through natural phenomenon To change human hearts. So maybe it's this. Perhaps the Assyrians are already at a tipping point. They now have this zombie like looking Jewish prophet who rumor suggests emerged from, was birthed out of the sea, and he's prophesying impending destruction on this nation. So they cry out to God for mercy. Not too far fetched. This is absolutely wild to me. This is the first time I've ever seen this before in studying this text this past week. Let me ask you this question. When God initially commissions Jonah, if Jonah immediately goes to Nineveh, do you think the Ninevites repent? In other words, again, take Jesus at his word when he says Jonah was some kind of visible sign to the Ninevites. If Jonah doesn't have the legend and these other people following him that are saying, wow, this is a prophet that emerged from sea. If Jonah doesn't look like he's come back from the realm of the dead, do the Ninevites repent? Do they listen to his message? Or does God in his divine foreknowledge know that Jonah's initially going to say no? That he's going to run away? And that when he does, that sets in the course of action a chain of circumstances that eventually will end up giving Jonah's message more credibility than it otherwise would have had. God's sovereign knowledge and power is absolutely mind-blowing to me. That's all the time I can spend on it right now, but I just wanted to point that out real quick. We've got to move on. The Ninevites, it works. The message resonates. They repent. Not only the Ninevites, but the king of Assyria on behalf of Assyria is led to repent. The question is, what exactly does repent mean here, right? So specifically what it says in the text is this. It says, let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? Maybe God will relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Now, the Hebrew word for repent here is just the word shuv, which means to turn away from. And the Hebrew word for God here is the word Elohim, which is actually kind of a a general name for God. In other words, it's not the Lord God of Israel, the covenantal name of God. And so here's what we know, and here's what we don't know. What we do know is they turned to God for mercy. We know that they turned away from their wicked and evil, violent ways. And we know that it probably wasn't so much to enhance their relationship with the Lord God of Israel as much as it was to stave off impending judgment. What we don't know is whether or not these people repented in the sense that they became true believers of the Lord God of Israel uh, as, as their Lord and Savior. Which, by the way, there is no mention that they turned away from their other idols. There is no mention that, for instance, the men were circumcised and they all entered into proper Jewish worship or anything like that. If you read a lot of commentators, and I have a, you know, a shelf full of them that will say, this is 100% the conversion of over 500,000 Ninevites to believe in the true God of Israel at this time. And they'll generally say things like, well, why would you doubt that that could happen? That these are true believers now? Because can't God do mass conversion? Didn't he do it with the, the uh, people at Pentecost and stuff like that? My response to that would be, of course God can do that. He did do it on Pentecost. What I'm doubting is whether or not there's sufficient evidence to say that all of these are actual, genuine believers at this point. So, for instance, you have to account for the fact that about 100 years later, God is going to destroy Nineveh specifically because of its violence and wickedness, which doesn't seem to be completely consistent if this nation is totally regenerate as a people. Furthermore, I'm not convinced that the language itself technically says they were led to that level of conversion. Uh, Now, again, some Bible scholars will say like, well, when you use the word for repent and you combine it with this adjective, it usually means repentance to change in faith. And I'm just going to tell you what, I remain a little unconvinced by that. I do think there were some genuine converts to the Lord God of Israel as the one true God, but I'm unconvinced that every Ninevite did much more than add Yahweh to their whole pantheon of gods. Now, here's why this is important. Because People with conservative theology, and I have conservative theology, sometimes have very narrow definitions of things like conversion and repentance and things like that. And we look at events and we press very tight categories onto those. And here's why it's important. We'll get to this a little bit more under the applications and lessons section. If all the Ninevites did, they didn't convert to worshiping the Lord God of Israel as the one true God. If all they did was stop torturing children and stop killing and beating people, one another and others, is that not enough reason to praise God? Conservative Christians sometimes have a tendency to underestimate the importance of things like social renewal and societal reform. And if all that's happening here is the Ninevites become a lot less violent, a lot more compassionate, a lot more people live a lot longer and can experience the grace of God, That is sufficient reason to praise God because it serves humanity and glorifies God's name. Now, we got to get to the final point. The last verse in the lesson says this. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. At some point, God communicates to Jonah, yep, they repented, I'm not going to destroy this city. And even this, you know, some Christians have some issues with this at times because it's like, wait a second, God changed his mind? I thought there are spots in the Bible that says that God cannot change his mind. And, you know, God doesn't change his value system. God is perfectly consistent in a way that humans are not. But he's also not an impersonal force or a machine. So he can change his mind. He can change his course of action. And due to the Ninevites' repentance, God does change his course of action and shows mercy to the Ninevites in the same way that God chose to show mercy to you and to me, okay? Now, what does it all mean? I got three quick lessons to share with you today. First one is this. We're going to call it suffering to save. And we're going to talk a little bit about heroes today. Because every culture has a concept of hero or superhero, right? it's different a little bit from culture to culture, but the, the universality of it is this. It's usually an individual that goes through some level of personal adversity, but they emerge on the other side of that adversity stronger and with additional resolve and strength and almost kind of otherworldly power, like superhuman power. But because they've gone through suffering, because they've experienced suffering firsthand, they're a little more sympathetic to the hurt around the world and they want to help. It's one person going into a city to save the city. Now, the Jonah narrative, from a genre literary standpoint, is absolutely a hero narrative. What's unique about it, however, is his reluctance, and for that matter, his overt failure. So generally speaking, when we talk about like heroic conquest, it usually comes from individuals who are courageous and who are compassionate in all sorts of different ways. Let me put this slightly differently. You and I would never commission Jonah to do this work. And for that matter, after he failed, we would never go back to that same failure and recommission him to do this work. We'd say, this guy has disqualified himself for this work. But God does. And actually, what's interesting is this is not an isolated example. God has a habit in Scripture of doing this, redeeming the failure So, it's not just that he uses the runt of the litter to slay the giant. It's not just that he uses the prostitute of the city to be in the line of the Savior. It's that he uses the spiritual failure to be the one who's most qualified to talk about God's grace. You notice, like, for instance, even amongst the apostles, outside of Judas, who's the biggest overt failure amongst public failure amongst the apostles? It's clearly Peter. And yet, who's the one who gets up as a leader on Pentecost in Acts 2 and preaches a message? by which the Holy Spirit builds his church on grace. It's Peter. There is a redemptive principle in the Bible by which failure actually makes you more useful for the kingdom, by which suffering can actually make you a lowercase s savior. Uh, So for instance, In Matthew chapter 12 and in Luke 11, Jesus, when he's talking to the Pharisees and he's talking about this wicked and corrupt generation, he says, the sign that they will receive is the sign of Jonah. They're asking for a miracle to substantiate his divinity. Now, what you and I would have done if we were in that situation is we would have, you want some power? Let me show you some power. All right? And we would have made life miserable for those Pharisees. We made them look funny through a miracle or shrunken them down or given them a tail or something like that. You know, something real embarrassing. Like, you're going to question my power? Jesus doesn't do that. You know why? Because he has to show that though he's powerful, he doesn't use his power the way a selfish, proud world uses power. You're going to see my power, but you're going to see my power through my failure. You're going to see my strength, but you're going to see my strength in my weakness at a cross. You're going to receive my life, but you're going to receive it through my death. See, he's showing them his power in completely different ways. Uh, There's another spot in John chapter 12 where he says, Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground, it remains only a seed. But when it dies and it's buried, then it produces many seeds. You see what he's saying? Suffering and failure can make you useful in ways that success cannot. This is not that difficult to prove from an illustration standpoint. Have you ever noticed that the people who are the biggest advocates for the disabled are those who have like disabled children themselves? Have you ever noticed that people who are the biggest advocates for cancer research and uh, cancer, you know, advocacy and stuff like that, they tend to be people who have had family members die from maybe even a specific type of cancer? You know, I used to think, I used to think that maybe even that was a little bit of a manifestation of selfishness because, you know, you only care about the thing that directly affected you. And I've completely done a 180 on this. And I think, no, I think that individual is just awakened to something that the rest of us are still blind to. And what I mean by that is, you know, human pride. Human pride is so pervasive that it, it typically requires some level of experiential suffering and failure to transform us into sympathetic servants to other hurting people. Proud people do not change the world. Proud people do not help transform any other human beings. By the way, I know this is, this is true humblingly, even in myself. I've told plenty of you about my OCD and my depression and belts of that in the past. I'm not even going to rehash all of that. What I am going to say is this. If I didn't go through anxiety disorder and depression throughout my life, I can nearly guarantee that when I looked out into the world and I saw suffering, if everything went my way, you know what I think I would say in my self-righteous religious pride? I would look at other people's suffering and say, you know what? If you maybe just thought a little bit better and you worked a little harder and you were a little bit more moral, maybe you wouldn't have some of the problems that you have. God has mostly spanked most of that pride out of me, I'm thankful for. It's been painful, but good. And for that matter, what I would also say on the converse end of that is the things that I can tell you as as a minister that very clearly I, I can see resonate with people the most is when I talk about my undeniable hope for now and for the future despite my occasionally, like, cripplingly painful depression. You know, what I've found is that my death, my death is where God seems to bring life. My weakness is where God seems to help evoke transformation. Some of us spend our lives resenting our weaknesses and regretting all of our failures. And yet the sign of Jonah says that God brings glory to the place that spites your pride the most. God is gonna bring glory to the places that will spite your human pride the absolute most. So what you do is you voluntarily empty yourself of your pride and you voluntarily thank God even in your suffering because that is the likeliest place that God is gonna sprout new life. Failure can make you heroic and suffering can make you useful to a savior of grace, okay? So, point two, strategy of the city. We're going to talk a little bit more about heroes and superheroes because we've already developed that hero archetype, somebody who's gone through adversity and uses it now to help others with that new resolve they have. Let me ask you just a real quick question as we talk about the strategy of city. Superheroes. Have you ever noticed that no superheroes live in the country? There aren't any superheroes who, so far as I can tell, dwell in the suburbs? I, I mean, maybe there are, and I don't have to know the whole genre all that well, but like, let's just use like the archetype of Superman himself. Superman, it's a little on the nose, but Superman grows up in a farming family in a town called Smallville. All right, let's just make it real clear here what kind of size city he's growing up in. And he grows up, and he can't fulfill his life mission until he goes out to a city that is called metropolis. They're trying to make it very clear, right? In some respects, why? Because you can't actually be a superhero in the countryside or in suburbia because there's not enough people there, which means there's not enough hurt there. See, I'm not saying that there isn't any hurt any, in any particular spot on the planet. I'm saying where there's the most people, proportionately, it makes sense from God's perspective, that's where the most hurt and the most opportunity for redemption exists, that is a theological truth that's, that we get in our like superhero genre that's directly taken directly out of the Bible. You'll notice the strategy. When God commissions the Apostle Paul to go and be the missionary of the world, where does Paul go? He goes into cities. Over and over, he plants churches in cities. The early Christian church, when it converts the Roman Empire within several centuries AD without hardly any political, financial, or educational resources. It has a two-pronged attack by God's grace. It has the gospel of Jesus Christ and has a strategy of cities. In fact, this is super interesting, at least to me, the word that we have for pagan, it's an English word, but it comes from the ancient Latin word paganus, which literally means countryside. Because in the early Christian church, every Christian lived in the city And it was only the pagans who lived out in the countryside because the gospel spread from the city outwards. Now, a couple different things, what this means and what this doesn't mean. We're going to talk about this a little bit more next week because literally the last thing that is said in the book of Jonah at the end of chapter 4 is God says, Jonah, should I not have great concern for this great city of Nineveh where more than 120,000 people cannot tell their right hand from their left? God talks about the importance of Nineveh and the importance of city in overtly numeric terms. He's saying, there's so many souls there. Come on, there's so many souls there. Why shouldn't I care and have compassion? Because there's so many souls who live there. The city is the most strategic place for Christians and Christian churches to work. Now, it's a little scary because generally speaking, there's more crime in the city There's more diversity of thought in the city. And here's the scariest one to me. There's more talent in the city because there's more people there. It's much easier to be a big fish in a small pond than it is to be a big fish in an ocean, right? And nonetheless, the strategy is always that culture moves from the city outwards. And if you say, okay, American Christianity, where has it gone in the past 150 years or so? Christians have not been investing in the cities as much as human beings have been moving to the cities. And that's one of the reasons why you see the constant decline in American Christianity for the past hundred years. So what does that mean for us? I gotta, again, say what it means and what it doesn't mean here. St. Marcus, I am not saying that every single human being is going to live in a specific neighborhood or a, a specific area code. That is not a God-given mandate. There's no passage in the Bible that says that, and I'm not gonna say it. What I am saying is there's a very clear principle that God commands, Christians and churches to invest in the strategy of the city. So all of us are going to do that. Now, that might mean different things for different people. Some of us will choose to live in a certain neighborhood or zip code and as a a missional example of the incarnation of Christ. Some of us, however, are simply going to mentor a child in the city who has been forced to grow up at an extraordinary rate and could use an additional little guidance from a godly, mature adult in their lives. Some of us are going to invest really heavily in what we call ministries of mercy, which are disproportionately prevalent in cities because there's more hurt, because there's more people in cities. Some of us are simply going to pray for and be members of and financially support gospel ministries that exist in the city. This, by the way, includes, uh, I'm not, I've embraced the fact that we now have Uh, many times more people who listen to our podcasts and listen to stuff online than we have human beings uh, right here in person. So to some extent, I'm talking to you. It is not an overstep for me to say, does God want you to financially invest in gospel ministries of the city, even if you are not in the city? The answer is yes, he does. Because As the city goes, so the culture goes. And if you fill the cities with the gospel, it'll move out. And that's how God historically, uh, ecclesiology, theology, and practicality, how God has brought the gospel out into the world throughout history. So, yes, I am saying you can go to stmarcus.org and donate to our community engagement ministry, and I guarantee that money will go towards healing hurt that exists in the city. Final point on this. If you don't know, you should know the trajectory of humanity according to the bible is going to be into cities. So for instance, in 1800, less than 5% of the population around the globe lived in cities. In 1900, that number was about 14%. After 2000, the number of people globally living in cities was about 50%. And most sociologists will tell you that by about 2050 or a little bit after, we're going to have 75 or 80% of the human population is going to live in cities. Superheroes move from the country to the city because that's where the most hurt is and that's where the most opportunity for good is. Human history is progressing from a garden in Genesis to a garden city in Revelation. So hop on that bus. We know it's going there. You might as well hop on that bus right now and invest in the strategy of the city, right? Here's my final point. A true Jonah, a greater Jonah, an ultimate Jonah who actually does care. Like throughout this entire book, you're trying to, you're like saying, why doesn't God's prophet care? And it's creating in you a desire for a prophet that would come from God who actually would care. And so as we talk about like potential for suffering and a city strategy, that might sound a little bit scary or daunting or confusing and quite honestly, it is to me. It definitely is to me. I'm trying to work through this too. One of the things about the book of Jonah that I love the most though is that the good things that happen in Nineveh have nothing to do with his competence. You know, like, his reluctant message, 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Does that strike you as a particularly dynamic sermon? Is that a pretty good sermon? 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. If I got up and got that message, uh, something like that today. would... And I've, granted, I've heard a lot of stinkers in my life, and I've rolled out a number of, like, stinker sermons in my life myself, but this is pretty lousy in some respects. You're going to be destroyed. You got a little time. All right. He doesn't even give them any expectation that there's necessarily any hope involved. In other words, it's kind of a bad message and God changes the course of an entire nation through it. You know what that means? It doesn't depend on your competence. It doesn't depend on your skill. It depends on God's grace. It depends on God's sovereign power. What is God going to accomplish through you, his similarly flawed but redeemed ambassador? I don't know exactly, but again, I know you should be confident because it doesn't depend on you. God is going to use you, but it depends on his grace. It depends on his sovereignty. It depends on the one that Jonah ultimately pointed to because, you know, a week before Easter, another prophet entered into a great city. Jesus, the ultimate Jonah, walked into the great city of Jerusalem, but you notice he didn't say, in a week, Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. That wasn't his message. What was his message? The son of man is going to be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise. It's not in a week, you will be destroyed. It's in a week, I will be destroyed in your place because I love you that much. Born in a manger in the country, he moved to the city to die to serve people. I'll tell you what, as much as I enjoy telling you that it's God's MO, that he is going to redeem your suffering and make you heroic servants to the world around you, and I believe that, it's actually much, much, much more important that I remind you that no matter who God potentially helps or heals or saves through your work, that doesn't save you. God might use you to spare the life of the entire planet. That still won't save you because you cannot save what is already saved. You and I aren't perfect, but you know what we are? We are perfectly justified before our Heavenly Father. And we are because our hero came from heaven to earth and country to city and life to death so that all of our mistakes and all of our self-righteousness and all of our weak messaging and our weak witnessing and all of our suffering might be forgiven and (laughs) we would be redeemed for good. Because a hero doesn't teach you how to save yourself. Jesus is not like the Four Dummies book series or an HGTV DIY, fix up your life and fix up your house, whatever. He's not an online masterclass that teaches you self-improvement. That's not what heroes do. Heroes save you. He saves you despite yourself. He was thrown overboard into the raging waters of God's wrath for our sins. He sunk down into the belly of hell. And he returned to dry ground so that he could carry us safely to the heavenly city that is the new Jerusalem. And he doesn't ask you to save anybody. He asks you to repent, to experience his grace, to live in that grace and enjoy that grace, to praise him for that, and then go to the city. And then he'll use you for the kingdom. Let's close with prayer. Lord Jesus, we're finding each week that Jonah is not somebody that we're trying to emulate. But he is someone in whom we see a lot of ourselves, some pride and some stubbornness and some unfortunate failure. But you use powerfully that which you redeem. So forgive us and recommission us and work through us till you carry us to the holy city. May this all glorify your name. Amen.